Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Isaiah 38, and if you're able, please stand, and uh, I'll read God's Word to you. It's not a real long chapter. If you have to sit down, I will not persecute you. So, I'm a little loud in here, Evan. It's blasting back in my face. Thanks. It says, in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and tell Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely, I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. And this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. This is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord in the land, in the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My lifespan is gone, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I have cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom. From the day until night, you make an end of me. I have considered until morning like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me like a crane or a swallow. So I chattered. I mourned like a dove. My eyes fail from looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. So you will restore me and make me live. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you, those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil and he shall recover. And Hezekiah had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of of the Lord. So if you've read, um, we'll pray in just a second, but if you've read Second Kings and, and the account in Chronicles, you know that this is very much abbreviated. And we'll talk about some of the difference, not the differences, but the additions that uh, Isaiah had left out for his own reasons. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we're, we're thankful for Rusty. And Lord, it is hard to talk about. Just my brother. I've known few, few men like him. Just his example his service, his humility, his study of the word, his wisdom. 
Lord, his encouragement to me and so many other people. Lord, thank you for the blessing that he was. And Lord, I pray for Shannon, his widow, that you would walk with her, that you would grant her grace, Lord, and uh, that she would walk closely to you uh, because of the circumstances. Lord. And I pray that you'd be with us tonight as we consider uh, this story and your intervention. Use it to encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Let's start back at the top. <clears throat> it says, in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near to death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz, went to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Well, come on in, Isaiah. <laughs> Make yourself comfortable. Yeah, it, it begins by saying, in those days, uh, this story occurred just before uh, the events that were recorded in 36 and 37, that is, the invasion of the Assyrians. And all of this seems to have, at least by the knowledge that they had that Assyria was on the move uh, until the time that they retreated, it was about a two-year period. Uh, Hezekiah probably knew, um, I don't know, I don't know exactly how long that they knew before they were advancing toward them, uh, but it was probably weeks and weeks, maybe a couple months. Um, but in the midst of all that, with impending doom, uh, knowing that they were uh, no match for the Assyrians, uh, knowing what they had done to other nations and all of that, all that's on Isaiah's mind, the prophet came to Hezekiah with the oracle, you're going to die and you need to get your house in order. Yeah. Now, all that we know about Hezekiah's illness is that he had some kind of boil, a sore, um, and perhaps in God's knowledge, uh, he knew that the sore was infected and that any moment it would enter the bloodstream and that would kill Hezekiah. Remember, this is before penicillin and it was amazing what killed people uh, before the advent of antibiotics and other things. And so because he would die, God told him uh, to get his affairs, uh, the affairs of his house in order. Well, this is a big deal for Hezekiah. He doesn't just have a household like the average person. His household is the royal household. And so whatever he does in getting things in order is going to affect the entire kingdom. And, uh, and things, as we know, are not um, easily to, to put in order. Another problem, because of the circumstances, another problem is, is that Hezekiah had no son. There was no uh, buddy from his lineage to take the throne. There were uh, other uh, people from the lineage of David that could sit on the throne, but it is to a man's honor that his son take over his, his throne. And uh, so things are challenging at this point. And so Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight and Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, in his prayer, Hezekiah was probably appealing to a conditional promise made by God in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's verses 12 through 15. Let me read it to you. God, speaking to the nation of Israel, said, Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments, and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love and bless you, now listen carefully. He will multiply you. 
He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sicknesses and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of which Egypt I'm sorry, of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. So the condition was that if they remain faithful to the covenant, and there's way more to this promise, but no one will be sick. All of your flocks and herds will produce. You will produce. God promised elsewhere that there would be no miscarriages, no stillborn among their wives, among their livestock. There would be no pestilence. There would be no plague. There, imagine having all of that uh, offered to you. Now, the problem is, is the promise was made in regard to Israel's corporate faithfulness to keep the law. So it didn't actually apply to Hezekiah at this particular time. But Hezekiah was faithful to the Lord, and I think that he was certainly hoping that mercy would be granted to him in the spirit of the promise. I mean, don't we all when we're miserable? And and Second Kings... 18, five through six, uh, this is the Holy Spirit's um, estimation of Hezekiah. It says, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him, because he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. So Hezekiah himself would have met the condition for God's promise if it was for individuals. But because it was corporate in nature, he has to just really appeal to the mercy of God. Also, how old do you think Hezekiah was at this time? He was 39 or 40. Yeah, 39 or 40 years old. So fairly young. Uh, Later, he will say that he was in the prime of his life. Verse 10, who wants to die in the prime of their life? So he's been faithful to the Lord. He's young and he has no male child to ascend the throne. This is troubling, the place that he's at. He has good reason to pray. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, go and tell Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days 15 years, which isn't that much. Yeah, it means I got nine years left. Yeah, I don't want to go in nine years. (laughs) Quickly, he, he mentions David, uh, the Lord does. It probably has something to do with the promise that God had made David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, guaranteeing that he would protect the throne and ensure that one of David's descendants would sit on it. So whatever does happen, uh, God is reminding Hezekiah that my promise stands, even if you, know, if you pass away or whatever. And then God says, I've heard your prayer and I've, I've seen your tears. I think the idea is there that God is, is looking into Hezekiah's heart. He sees that his motives are, are pure. And uh, so the Lord adds these 15 years to his life. Now, real quick, last week we talked about how God at times has ordained to intervene in our lives or the lives of others on the condition that we pray. You remember talking about that? On the condition that we pray. So 
Here we have another example like that. God had intended to let Hezekiah die if Hezekiah did not pray. I mean, he had Isaiah go to him, you're a dead man. But then after he pleads with God, God adds to his life. Now, real quick, just in addition to this, uh, God knew, right, in advance that Hezekiah would pray, but the contingency is still real. God's foreknowledge is not coercive. Let me say a little bit about that. Some believe that God's foreknowledge is actually coercive, that it causes everything to happen the way it happens. So in other words, God doesn't just know everything, he causes it to happen. But those who believe that, they kind of avoid that language. Uh, They believe in what is called unilateral divine determinism. Most of us know that as fatalism, okay? In a nutshell, it means this. God alone acts on the subject. That's us. And in this form of determinism, man is without any kind of free will, and all of man's actions are ultimately caused by God. And thus, there are no real conditions, and any action on our part is ultimately meaningless. And if unilateral divine determinism is how God works in this world, he then is both the author and the actor of sin and evil. And, and though many confessions uh, throughout church history, they deny that God is the author of sin, but it's nonetheless the logical conclusion of that kind of determinism. And if you deny something, you have to demonstrate how your denial is plausible or reasonable, and they do not. At least, they don't do it well. Well, I'm not a unilateral divine determinist. I I actually don't see any conflict between God's foreknowledge and real contingencies. I believe that our our actions are our own. Uh, I believe that they're free, and I believe that they're meaningful. And according to Scripture, it's impossible for God to be responsible for moral evil. Okay, he can't be the author of it, and he can't be the actor. He can't be the cause of it. So in our story, God knew that Hezekiah would pray, but he did not you know, unilaterally determine that Hezekiah would pray apart from Hezekiah's freedom to do it. So it was all meaningful without divine coercion. So that makes the contingency... It makes the condition upon which God moves in our lives or somebody else's life based upon our prayers actually meaningful, actually meaningful. So the moral of the story is this, be faithful to God in his word and pray without ceasing. It's the only way to seek out what God has ordained to do or not do. It's the only way. Let's move on. There's actually another one in the story. He says, I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria and I will defend this city. Now we already know Uh, that God delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrians, but Hezekiah didn't, okay? You remember the angel went out that night and killed 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers, and they woke up and said, I think we should leave. I think we should go home, okay? So notice kind of the situation that Hezekiah was in at this very moment. He had a lot going on in life. I think it's easy for us to kind of read over it and go, well, Hezekiah, you just need to believe. You just need to trust the Lord. But he was deathly ill. And something that was really getting at Hezekiah is that because of his sore, he could not worship in the temple. He was ceremonially unclean, unclean. He was being invaded. 
Many cities in Judea had fallen to the Assyrians, you know, sometime within this whole time frame. He had no heir to take his place. And under all of this pressure, he had to manage the kingdom. He had to clean up the damage and he had to get aid to those that had been invaded. He had to serve those people. Times were stressful. Amen. And this is the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. Now, when you go to 2 Kings 20, you discover that there's actually more that was done. Isaiah abbreviated it. But Hezekiah actually asked Isaiah, saying, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? Well, real quick, a sign wasn't necessary, okay? The word of the prophet was sufficient because no word from any prophet of God had ever failed in the past. And according to Deuteronomy 13 and 18, if what they said did not come to pass, they were not a prophet of God. In fact, that prophet was to be stoned. And the word of a true prophet didn't have to be confirmed by signs and wonders anyway. It was confirmed by their orthodoxy. You remember? It said that if they, that is a prophet, does not speak according to this word, there is no light in them. Okay? Deuteronomy 13 says they have to speak the truth that is in consistency with God's word or they're a false prophet. So a prophet is confirmed by his orthodoxy. That's Deuteronomy 13, and then according to Deuteronomy 18, whether or not the oracle or the prophecy comes to pass. So signs weren't necessary, but he's in a bad way, and he didn't want to wait, so he wanted this assurance right away. So behold, I would, will bring the shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down, the sundial of Ahaz. That's interesting. Uh, Apparently, uh, it was some kind of uh, triangular staircase where one set of stairs was facing east and the other set of the stairs was facing west, okay? And then they were joining at the top and, and so east and west, like that, okay? As the sun came up in the east, uh, the, the staircase facing the east, of course, would be lit up, right? Because the sun was shining directly on it. And on the west side would be the shadow. As the sun passed the midday sky, a shadow would begin to form on the staircase facing east. And the staircase facing west would progressively light up. Okay? It's pretty basic. It's not like the one we think of as a, a table and then a, a sail on it. Do you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, the Hebrew word here... Uh, is a word that means steps. So his son, the dial, the word there is actually steps. And it would form shadows depending on the location of the sun. Now it's interesting to note that in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, verse 10 through 12, God had offered Ahaz a sign. And Ahaz said, no thank you. And then he had this staircase built as a sundial. And then God provided a sign to his son on it. I just think that's so interesting. He rejected a sign and Hezekiah requested one and it happened to be on something that his very wicked father had built. 
so funny. Originally, as revealed in 2 Kings 20, uh, God was going to have the shadow of the sundial go down with the sun, but Hezekiah said that the shadow on the dial goes down anyway. That would be completely normal. He wanted a sure sign, so he requested that the shadow go backward, the opposite of its natural course. Well, God honored it, and he moved it 10 degrees the opposite direction. Notice again, God intended to move the shadow on the sundial its regular direction, but Hezekiah requested that it go the other direction, and God honored it. God would not have moved it backwards without Hezekiah asking. Again, we do not know what God has ordained or what God will do or not do until we do what? Until we pray. That's right. Now, quickly, for the miracle that was performed, did God move the sun eastward in the sky to create this miracle, which would have adjusted the calendar globally, or did he make the shadow go backward by refracting or bending the light? Either way, a miracle is performed. I don't know, okay? I don't know. But Hezekiah did see the shadow go the wrong direction. Okay, some miracle was performed, he saw it, he believed it. And three days later, he was in the temple, a clean man, worshiping his God. Very cool. So then we have this response of Hezekiah to him being healed and restored to worship. It says, this is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. Now, the, the, uh, this whole thing is divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 15, or 10 through 15, is the, his lamentation. He's going over his pain, his, his misery. And then 16 through 20 is his, his praise. Let's read through it quickly again. I said in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see Yah, that's an abbreviated form of Yahweh. I shall not see Yah. Now, now, real quick, why did he abbreviate it that way? Some say rabbinical tradition, he didn't want to say the name of God, but other people will say the name of God. It's possible that in Hebrew, it had a, because um, it's more of a song, it's rhythmic, and it might have just flowed better. It says, the Lord in the land of the living, I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My lifespan is gone taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I've cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. I have considered until morning like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me like a crane or a swallow. So I chattered. I mourned like a dove. My eyes fail from looking upward. O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. So that concludes the lament, but then God intervenes, and so his pain is turned to praise. He says, O Lord, by these, things, uh, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. So you will restore me and make me alive. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. I love that. It was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. God allows us to go through terrible things so that when he lifts us out of it, we just have this 
great sense of relationship with him and peace and everything else. Now, there's no apparent sin that caused Hezekiah's illness. And there was no apparent sin in Hezekiah's life. Of course, we know that he was a sinner like other people. He wasn't without sin, and he knows that. But here, he rejoices not only because God has spared his life, but because God has taken Hezekiah's sins and he's, he's cast them behind his back. I love the whole image of that. It's like you have something that's worthless to you, and so you, you cast it off. You get rid of it. Get rid of it. He threw his sins behind him, out of his sight, out of his mind, took them out of the way, and he forgot them. God has no use for the sins that he's forgiven. But we're not always like God in that way, are we? We can say we forgive someone, but the moment they repeat their crimes, what do we do with their past sins? You throw them back in their face. Or when we sin against them, we remind them of their past sins, right? to excuse our present sin as if to say, now we're even. But it doesn't really level the playing field. It just makes us an unforgiving sinner. So actually, by bringing it back, we multiply our sins, and we become more of a sinner than them. But when God forgives, he takes our sin away from us, and he permanently discards them never to hold them against us, ever. In Romans chapter 4, verse 8, the apostle Paul, he, he quotes David, And it says this, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. To impute sin would be to hold someone's sin against them, okay? So to not impute sin would be to not hold their sin against them. Truly, if God does not hold sin against someone, that is a condition of absolute blessedness. Amen? Absolute blessedness. The NIV captures the Greek grammar best, but not fully because if you render the, the Greek word for word, you have a double negative. And in Greek, it enforces the negative. Okay? So it's different than English. But the NIV says, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. The Greek actually says, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never, no, not ever count his sin or hold his sin against them. Well, the question is, how does someone acquire this kind of blessedness? Yeah. Now, Paul argues in the same chapter that everyone who has repented and trusted in Jesus, they're the blessed man. It's it's that simple. It's not the person who lived their whole life morally flawless and faithful to God's word. It's not the person who lived a life of good works. Paul even rejects that idea in verse 5. Paul says that the blessed man is the person who trusts in Christ. They, They have this blessedness because God discarded their sins under the blood of Christ And then he took the righteousness of Christ and he holds that to their account. So sin behind his back and the righteousness upon, it says he justifies, astonishingly, the ungodly. Because they're not godly yet. (laughs) That just doesn't happen at justification. That's a lifetime process of growing in Christ. Two very different things, justification and sanctification. He goes on, he says, for Sheol, mind you, Sheol is the grave or the place of departed spirits. He says, for Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The father shall make known your truth to the children. There's a difficulty in this, some of this statement of Hezekiah. Bible difficulty, we might say. 
He says, those who go down to the pit cannot hope for God's truth. Depending on what he means, he can be wrong or he could be right. That's a problem, okay? If Hezekiah means that all dead people cannot hope in God's truth, he is in error. He's in grave error, okay? For all those who died in faith, look forward in hope to many things, to the new heaven and the new earth, to the resurrection of their body, and on and on I could go. But if he means that all dead people cannot hope for the truth of God that pertains to this life, he's correct. Only the living can hope for what pertains to this life. The dead cannot, for example, hope that they will not die, saying that they're dead, okay? At least their body is dead. Now, when it comes to Hezekiah's words uh, and the things that he declares as truth, just like Hannah, Samuel's mother, did in 1 Samuel, we have to recognize that Hezekiah, Hannah, they're not prophets, and so they can speak in error. Understand that. But if Hezekiah did, in spe- did indeed speak in error, the question is asked, how did an error get into the Bible? Well, first, there is no error in what the Bible recorded. Okay? Isaiah recorded Hezekiah's false statement truthfully and accurately. That is actually what Hezekiah said, even though that what Hezekiah said or potentially believed was an error. Okay? The Bible actually records many things that were false, but the Bible truthfully and accurately recorded those statements, false statements, made by uninformed people. You see the difference. Just because there's a false claim, a false statement in the Bible, doesn't mean that the Bible is an error. If Isaiah reported something that Hezekiah did not say, then there would be an error in the Bible. Okay? But what God declares in Scripture himself and what a prophet says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is always true and always has final authority. So Hezekiah could make a false statement, but God cannot. But he can record the false statements of others. Now I bring that up because many people stumble, especially when they read Hannah's song that says that the earth is held up by pillars. Well, we disagree with that uh, because prophets said, Isaiah said that the earth hangs upon nothing. And he says that the earth is a free-floating sphere in space, which science agrees with that as well. It does not agree with pillars. Amen? So people read the false claim of a person that is in the narrative of Scripture, and they go, there's, there's something in error in the Bible. No, it's the record of that error, but it's not something that God had said or declared to be true. So the only error here is what Hezekiah said. If indeed he meant that the believing dead cannot hope in any of God's truths. You understand? Okay. I'm not totally sure what Hezekiah meant. I just know what he said. You get it? Either way, there's no error in the scriptures. If you have questions about that, let's talk after service. He says, the Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life. Where? Where he longed to be, the house of the Lord. I love that. Understand this, Hezekiah has 15 years to live, and those years will be spent praising God in the temple. Either way, Hezekiah wrote uh, some worship songs, and he says those songs will be incorporated into temple worship. You understand, the Psalms written by David, uh, inspired by his circumstances in life as God was faithful to him as he went through so many terrible things, those were the songs that were sung in the temple. And then we have the, what we call the Hallels, uh, which 
the hymns that were, that were sung at Passover, Jesus sang some of David's psalms at Passover. It's very cool. And we have those today as well. Very interesting stuff. Now, Isaiah had said, let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil and he shall recover. Now, prior to these words from Hezekiah, Isaiah had instructed the physicians. So before he did this song, okay, uh, part of the original engagement uh, when Isaiah came to him uh, and got word from the Lord that he would be healed, Isaiah told the physicians, whoever it was, to apply figs to his boil for healing. I want to just provide a bit of a word of caution uh, about what, you know, so-called biblical remedies, recipes, and formulas. Now, some of you, I'm not very old. I'm a very, very young guy, you could tell. But some of you are old enough to have experienced things that went through the church over the years. And some of the young people are like, what are you talking about? Well, let's talk about some of them, okay? A number of things used in scripture before a miracle of God is performed or before an oracle is given, understand it should not be repeated simply because it's in the scriptures, okay? For example, when Jesus spit in the dirt and made mud with it, and then applied it to a blind man's eyes, he was not instructing us to do the same to heal people of blindness. If you do that, you will be disappointed, okay? In the context of the story, Jesus wasn't trying to give us some secret cure for blindness. What he was probably doing is he was probably trying to initiate another discussion about the Sabbath so he could correct rabbinical tradition. He did it on the Sabbath, and he could have done many, many different things on the Sabbath. He never repeated that for blind people, okay? But according to rabbinical tradition, it was a violation of the Sabbath to add water to dirt and make mud. That was a violation of the Sabbath. And it was another violation to make any kind of ointment and apply it to the eyelids of a blind person on the Sabbath. Alfred Eidersheim, who was raised uh, to be a rabbi, came to faith in school, a Baptist minister, led him to Christ. He was well steeped and learned in rabbinical tradition. Um, His commentary on that section of the gospels, he says, dare I say that our Lord was picking a fight with the Pharisees. I don't know that he was picking a fight, but he wanted this controversy to come to the service so he could address it to the people. Stop this nonsense. This isn't what I meant or intended when I gave the Sabbath to my people. There's also a few recipes in the Bible, like for the, the anointing oil in the temple and for what is called Ezekiel bread. There's some in the freezer here, Roger told me. Now, real quick, there's nothing mystical about the oil that was made for the temple that if applied to a wound, it would heal someone or it would make something holy, anything holy, okay? And in Ezekiel, God was not trying to give a recipe for the kind of bread his people should be eating, as many people have said throughout the years. Also, there's formulas given in the Bible. They're not for us. For example, you know the story in Genesis. When Jacob's flocks were breeding, he exposed the flocks to peeled poplar, almond, and chestnut branches, and his flocks produced streaked, speckled, and spotted goats, all of which were he got to keep, remember? 
But there was a miracle involved because God was trying to bless Jacob before he sent him back to the land of Canaan, right? When it comes to medicinal things and formulas that accompanied a miracle or prophecy, there's very, very good reasons that we should not repeat it today, okay? So if you put mud made out of spit on a blind person's eyelids, uh, don't be surprised if you get slapped, okay? That's disgusting. If you want to eat Ezekiel bread, you're entitled to nasty bread, okay? I've tasted it. It ain't worth eating. I've toasted it, buttered it, and if you put gravy on it, it wouldn't help it any, okay? And if you peel tree branches to get a certain outcome with your flocks, you're going to be disappointed. And if you put fig on an open sore, it'll probably get infected, okay? So make sure that what is practiced in the scriptures is for you and your situation before you do it. For whatever reason, God instructed them to apply figs to the wound, but God miraculously healed Hezekiah. It wouldn't surprise me if figs actually accelerated infection, okay? Which would make the miracle even more pronounced, yeah? But if you want to experiment, it's on you. Let's move on. And Hezekiah had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? So again, this all happened before Hezekiah wrote his lament and his praise, okay? But I want you to, again, notice what was important to Hezekiah, what other people may have asked. He did not ask, what is the sign that God will deliver the city from the Assyrians? Even though the Assyrians were on their way, slaughtering thousands and thousands of people, crumbling kingdom after kingdom. He was concerned about being able to worship in the temple. He said, I just want to be in the Lord's presence. That is very, very interesting. When everything goes bad, what is most important to you? Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Well, Father, it, it does appear that <clears throat> one of the, the greatest reasons that you created us was for fellowship with our God, was to, as one of the confessions say, is to be loved by God and, or to love God and enjoy him forever. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look at things from your perspective, from your good purposes, your good pleasure. Lord, that above all things, even our physical well-being, our emotional well-being, that what would be most important to us is just intimacy with you, fellowship with you. Lord, when times are tough, when there's great loss, there's great pain, Lord, help us to just seek your face, to worship you, to have fellowship with you, Lord. Help us not to forget the most important thing, even as Jesus rebuked the church that they had forgotten, their first love, the church of Ephesus. Lord, it's you. And as Paul said, that you might have the preeminence in all things. So help us, Lord. Help us to show you. Show, help us to understand the value in worship, fellowship with you. And Lord, I pray um, for our church in regard to the passing of Rusty. I'm not sure anybody could leave the hole that Rusty has. And I know many people are going to be hurting and grieving through all this. And I just pray that you would comfort your church, that you grant grace, Lord. And that as we grieve, we would remember your promise. Rusty loved you. And as he always said, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.